Um, so as you can see, we've got a little bit of a different um, format for today's 11th hour. Amber Dermont, Blueberry Morning Snow, Nick Twemlow, and Vinnie Wilhelm have joined us to discuss the specific and intimate outside influences that affect their writing. And we'll start with each of them presenting a piece of work that served as some sort of inf uh, inspiration for their writing, and then we'll follow up with a Q&A. Um, also, on your way out, we've got a list of recommended reading and viewing um, that we've all put together, and uh, I'll give you that handout um, as you leave. So I'll introduce them all really quickly, and then we'll let them get started. Amber Dermont, and I'm starting on this side here. Amber Dermont is the author of the novel The Starboard Sea, and she teaches creative writing at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. Nick Twemlow is a poet and filmmaker. His first book of poems, Palm Trees, will be published um, this next fall, and he co-edits Canarium Books. Then we've got Vinnie Wilhelm, who was a recent fellow at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, and the author of a collection of short stories, In the Absence of Predators. And finally, Blueberry Morning Snow, who's the author of a book of poetry, Whale in the Woods, and his published poems in Thermos and Not Nostrum. So let's welcome them, and Amber's going to start. Carry it around or clip it on, whatever you want. Thank you. Um, I'm still kind of waiting for, I think it's the milk thistle that's supposed to kick in. The taurine is definitely kicked in, and the, uh, the ginseng. I can feel the ginseng. But it's the milk thistle I'm waiting for, so hopefully that will happen at some point. So um, I really, I, I believe when you're writing a novel, you have to create an entire world, and you have to be able to view that world from multiple points of view. And um, I, it's my duty, if I'm writing well, to actually imagine the lives of my characters. And I often think about uh, two things that sort of keep me on track, which is one, uh, Mary McCarthy had this line, you make your whole life your art. And I think it's really true, and you can tell based on the, uh, the, the hosiery I'm wearing that that's a goal that I set for myself every day, to make my whole life my art. And then the other thing is, you know, the, the notion of that there are different ways of seeing. And so with the point of view, you discover that the way that you see the world is not necessarily the way everyone else sees the world. So all of our experiences are so completely uh, at odds and in contradiction with one another. And so uh, I often turn to painters and photographers for lessons and point of view. And um, one of my favorite painters is a man named John Curran who does portrait art. And he works within a tradition, very, very, very much influenced by the old masters, his, his brushstroke, he's known for his technique, he's, he's just a sort of pristine artist, and he tends to paint portraits of women. He paints a lot of portraits of his wife, Rachel Feinstein, who's also an artist, who's a sculptress, and um, he also uh, paints society ladies, and so for, for the purposes of my novel, my novel is set in 1987. Um, a lot of the characters are very privileged, come from incredibly wealthy backgrounds, and um, are the sort of Manhattan socialites. And so I, um, I looked at a lot of his images to start, and I'll show you a couple, um, and then I'll show you one that really influenced uh, a specific character in my novel. Ultimately, a kind of a minor character, but because she was minor, I needed to account for her uh, with very specific brushstrokes. So um, one image... This is cool. Let's see if any of this works. So one image, this is an image of this sort of skinny woman, this socialite woman, and um, 
I have one character, uh, a, a mother who's very competitive with my, my narrator's mother. And when I was writing about her, I was, writing, I was thinking about writing about this woman who's tremendously skinny. And um, that that was part of her privilege, you know, that that was sort of like, and you can see with Curry, he has this very grotesque but beautiful um, ways of rendering faces and hands, you see these gnarly hands and how they reflect back and speak to the face. Um, and um, also, I'll show you a couple of other images of, of, of his work um, that kind of give you a sense of the way that he portrays women. Um, Here's another one, a very, very sort of beautiful, thin, um, privileged, uh, older woman. Uh, and then one of the things I look to is multiple points of view within a singular point of view. So Curran, he's known for these, these paintings of socialites and, and paintings of his wife, but he's also probably most famously known for a series of portraits that he did um, that are of women that look like sort of yearbook photos, and uh, the one that really speaks to me about his sense of humor and something that I think even when you're, um, when you're working within the grotesque, you need very much that humor, and that's this painting that he did of B. Arthur Naked, um, which I just, for, for me, and um, pardon me for showing you a picture of B. Arthur Naked, I, I don't think this is based on real life, um, but there's something about the humor of doing that, the kind of mind that would think about, you know, the sort of classic... American actress in this 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 profane way. Um, so his images seem to like the characters that he was uh, painting really seem to to sort of speak to me about the, my characters. Um, and this one in particular, this is a, a painting of his wife Rachel Feinstein. It's called Rachel and Furs. And um, I had a, a, a little postcard of this painting. Um, this young girl uh, was very real to me, and I knew when I saw her, you know, when I went to this exhibit at the Whitney years ago, and I saw this painting, and I thought, oh, she's a character in one of my novels, like, she's going to be in something that I write someday, and I knew immediately who she was, um, I understood her, her privilege, I understood, um, you know, what was underneath that fur, literally, I understood um, why she was wearing these glasses, what she was hiding, how she was hoping people would pay even more attention to her. Um, and so I, uh, when I was writing my, um, my novel, I turned to this image in order to capture uh, a specific character. And so I'll just read you this little section. Um, this is early in the novel when the, the narrator arrives at his new school. His name is Jason Prosper, and he's been kicked out of a previous school. And uh, he's going to this new school, and it's the kind of school where all the bad kids go um, once they've been kicked out of the previous schools. And so he, he already sort of knows everybody that he's about to meet. Um, and then he sees this girl. I'd forgotten about Briston Abington. She was from Greenwich and liked coming into the city for parties. Criffo, are you going to let him speak to me that way? It was nighttime and warm out, but Brizzy wore purple sunglasses with violet lenses and a fawn-colored fur coat that skimmed her knees. The coat was buttoned all the way up to the collar, and by the careful way that Brizzy shifted and teetered, I suspected that she wasn't wearing anything underneath. You lighting up her what? As Ray spoke to Tazewell, he reached over and ran his hand down the sleeves of Brizzy's coat. Our naughty chinchilla, he said. It's Tanuki, silly. She spun around and laughed. Japanese raccoon dog, very rare. 
I should probably be arrested for wearing it. And um, then I go on to describe that they have a whole backstory together. And that coat is going to become really important later on um, in the novel. So, you know, I, 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 I think that how we dress our characters really matters. Um, it's not a bad idea to look at, at portrait art and look at contemporary paintings and photography to sort of see how people dress, what they wear, um, and why. And um, once you put something in your book, you should use it. So once I had that, um, that image of that fur coat, I knew I had to do something more with it. And so when she shows up later on in the novel and she's wearing that coat, and something's going to happen as a result of her wearing that coat. Um, so that's a very simple, basic, I looked at an image, it inspired a character, I put the character in a world, and I, did, I, made, I made her act, I gave her agency. Um, and that's about as simple and direct as, as you can sort of get. Um, I think, is that my time? Did I, did I do this for 10 minutes? Did I? No, you gotta keep talking for a couple more. Do I, do I have to, I can keep talking, I just don't want to be, I, I have a lot to say, Vinny. I have a lot to say, I can keep going, I just wasn't sure if I, if I hit it or not. Um, I can show you some other images of, um, oh, I'll show you, this is coming up, I'm waiting for this to come up. Okay, so, um, then there's something that's like more indirect, um, which has less to do with like, literally looking at a picture and translating it. There's this um, photographer whose work I really admire named uh, Julia Fullerton-Batten, and she's a British photographer, and she takes pictures of young women um, in various states. And um, these two images, uh, you can see there's a kind of controlled chaos in these images of these young girls. And there's something about um, these images that really uh, speaks to me about this, what it means to be a young uh, a young woman, um, the state of feeling uh, as though you're supposed to be in control of your world and yet completely not. And so when I was writing um, the stories in my short story collection, I would often think um, abstractly about these images and what the feeling that they created within me when I looked at them is the same feeling I wanted to create within the world of my stories. And um, she also has these images of teenage girls um, where they're put into these sort of like play toyland settings and they, they wind up looking like giants. And um, I often think of my, my female characters especially like sort of feeling as though there's too much of them. Uh, I dated a guy once and he said to me, uh, there's too much of you. There's just too much of you. There's not enough room for me. Um, and it turned out there wasn't, so that worked out really nicely for all of us. But, um, so there's a line in, in one of my stories where uh, I have a character say that, and the, the, the girl feels like a giantess. She feels like this Amazon. Um, and so these, these, these portraits, these paintings, these photographs are very significant to me. Um, returning to Curran, when I was writing my novel, there's a relationship between two young boys um, who are sailors, and this image, uh, again, was one of the, the images that I had, you know, I had a postcard of, I looked at it every day, I thought about, um, and the love that I had, you know, I was desperate to create between my two, my two male characters, I felt had already been rendered in this image. There's something about these two men working together uh, in pursuit, uh, comfortable with their bodies, 
in the you know the sort of chaos of the ocean um, that I was always writing toward this image in trying to satisfy my understanding of, of my character's relationship. There was an image that already existed in the world that beautifully expressed what I was trying to, and it was my job to, to write toward that. Um, and I think that you, you, if you are a collector, I collect art, like art books, I, I constantly buy them and I, I pour through them, I just sit with them on my lap, and when I do that, to me, like that's part of my writing. That's, that's as good as a day of writing for me. Um, what I come away with from these images. Um, this is the uh, probably Karen's most famous image. Uh, it's a painting he did of his wife Rachel. It's called Heartless. And um, again, this this image spoke to me in terms of one of my characters, Ginger, who um, she starts out in the novel. She's she's pregnant, and then she has something sort of disastrous happen to her. And when I was describing what she looked like physically, but also, again, emotionally, what this image evoked for me, um, I, I kept thinking about this, this beautiful, seductive creature who ultimately has you know, no heart. I mean, that's, that's what we're meant to feel. But she does, she, she has this, this sort of emptiness within her. Um, the, other, let's see, the other image I want to show you, uh, uh, were two uh, images from Tina Barney, who is a very famous um, portrait photographer, and she has a documentary called Life Studies. Uh, she comes from a very privileged family in Manhattan, um, and she takes pictures of very wealthy people, and um, she takes them in the settings of their homes. And so uh, th this is a very famous series between uh, Marina and her father. And so it's the same people separated by about uh, a little under 10 years. And so that dynamic um, between this father and this daughter, again, there's a, there's a father-daughter pairing in my novel. And to me, this was their relationship, that father and that daughter. I, I came to understand my own characters by going out to the world, looking at another artist, rendering of uh, a relationship, a dynamic, and then using that um, as a kind of research into my own characters' lives. So again, um, this father, this daughter, very specific father-daughter relationship, and um, I, you know, I, 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 I kind of appropriated it for the, the purposes of understanding my own father-daughter relationship that I was creating. Um, the, the, the way in which this father, you can see him leaning down, and this submissive quality of the ease of her, uh, this young girl smoking. Um, there's a scene in my book where we see a father and daughter, and the father's doing everything he can to please the daughter. And she's just throwing away all of his gifts and standing in judgment of him. And so then how they come to reconcile becomes very significant. Um, and how they sort of maybe return to an easier time. You know, in this very you know, pastoral, you see the, the beautiful quilt, the floral quilt, this sort of almost fairy tale image here, um, and that juxtaposed against um, you know, the, the, the reality of her smoking and having moved on clearly from her dad. Um, so I just really recommend just looking, seeing a direct relationship between other artists and your work, because one of the things you have to account for at some point in your life is whether or not you have an aesthetic sensibility. And if there are other artists that speak to that sensibility and can inform your understanding and your way of seeing. So, have I done now? Yeah,
bouncing off the mic. Uh, and then there would be a makeup. 
and you would, you know, maybe you would cry, maybe you would just agree that maybe we got a little out of hand. Um, and then it would maybe come to some implicit sort of promise that we won't do this again. We agree on this issue now, whatever it might be. But then an hour later, somebody's going at it again. Um, and it's, it, it creates uh, a sense that you don't necessarily believe a whole lot of what you hear. And you begin to distrust um, pretty much everything that comes out of everyone in your family's mouth, really. Um, and, and, and all of this came to like, a, a, like this pitch when I was 15 years old. Uh, and my, for whatever reason, my mother wanted to have a talk with me. We were going through some stuff, you know, custody issues and all these things with my dad. And so she sits me outside on our porch and we're looking over at the park across the street. She says, you know, I'm not so sure your father is your father. And I said, huh, okay. And I didn't press her on it. I didn't want to know the details of how that, how it could be a, even a circumstance where my mother was with somebody else and that maybe I'm not the, the son of my father. And, uh, and my mother was, you know, she had the, she was obviously getting, striking out of my father, whatever. Um, and so I asked my dad about it uh, the next time I was with him, and he just had this blank stare and laughed. He was like, you're not crazy. You know, that, that was a standard response. This happened all the time. Uh, and, you know, over the years, I mean, I had serious doubts suddenly, and I started piecing together a puzzle of how this possibly could have happened, and then it became a joke in the family. And my brother, who loves to tease me, would make jokes about this constantly. And there was a specific person that we had all figured out might have been the possible father, and that guy, and, and that guy became this this shadow father of me, of me, in, in this narrative that my brother and I had built together, or he was building for me. Um, and over the years, I came to realize, you know, it's totally impossible. Uh, and my dad is my dad, whatever. You know, there are all sorts of complications there. But but there was this. It took me a long time to really wrap my head around why this was brought to me and what my mother might have been expecting out of this communication, um, and it, it, it planted the seed of doubt for a long, long time, something I still consider. And so I guess where I'm coming, where I'm trying to arrive is that, uh, you know, I, I had this education in, in, in the structure of argument growing up in which words had incredible potency to harm and hurt people, but also were completely bankrupt and meant nothing. And it was constantly like this. And so um, I, I think that's what I have sort of brought to my thinking about um, when, I, when I'm writing. And I wanted to show a clip to begin with of um, another person who, uh, Richard Pryor, um, there, there's some offensive language in this just to give you fair warning. But this is a very short bit from Richard Pryor, Black on the Sunset Strip, which was a comedy special that deeply informed me growing up. I used to, you know, we didn't have a DVD or a VHS copy of it, but it would show on television sometimes, and I would try to watch it whenever possible. Um, and so I think I'll just let Pryor do the speaking here. It's just a one-minute bit, but it's an interesting um, example of how language can really pervert uh, an interpersonal communication.
foremost. I hate karate when I'm strung out and panhandling on a corner where I grew up and happy to accept a farthing. I hate karate when my credit card is declined and I've got formula and diapers and wipes and a baby that hasn't stopped crying since I was born. I'm a master of the hate. I'll hate anything you present to me. Robert Creeley, hate him. My cancer-stricken mother, hate her. Your photos of your child, the delicate balance you maintain between love and work. Dress me up in a suit made of hate, stitched together by ten-year-old Indonesian children. Then watch me hate them, their piety, and their sleepless nights, their fingers worked to the bone. I hate Steve Jobs. If he hate me, then there's enough hate in this world to keep it spinning, like a dreidel made of razor blades. I'll give one to my son on the first day of Hanukkah and tell him that when he sees blood, it's just the color of all those who have hated you since you first, first walked the earth. You, destined to wander and negotiate, grovel, plead, and every other mode of humiliation that can be imagined. Because, my son, you have been hated on since your God asked Abraham to make the ultimate sacrifice. This Christmas season, when I sit you on Santa's fat and happy lap, give him this dreidel. Better, shove it in his mouth and tell him to bite down hard. When he bleeds his hate, tell him you were sent to purify his soul, his pitiless black soul filled with lumps of coal, themselves the very essence of hate. Don't hate the hater, my son. The hand that spins the dreidel comes from above. It is the hand of hate. It is your salvation. Thank you. Personal preference. 
He keeps marmalade and a spider monkey in his cabin and forked rooks on stand. When Captain Blood at sea discovers that he is pursued by the Dutch Admiral Van Tromp, he considers throwing the women overboard so that they will drift like so many giant lotuses in their green, lavender, purple, and blue gowns across Van Tromp's path, and he will have to stop and pick them up. Blood will have the women fitted with life jackets under their dresses. They will hardly be in much danger at all. But what about the jaws of the sea turtles? No, the women cannot be thrown overboard. Fire! Fire! What an idiotic idea! What could he have been thinking of the patterns they would have made floating on the surface of the water in the moonlight? A cherise gown, a silver gown. Captain Blood presents a facade of steely perturbability. He is poring over his charts promising everyone that things will get better. There's not been one bit of booty in the last eight months. Should he try another course, another ocean? The men have been quite decent about the situation. Nothing has been said. Still, it's nerve-wracking. When Captain Blood retires for the night, leaving orders that he can be called instantly if something comes up, he reads usually, or smokes, thinking calmly of last things. And then there's, you know, it goes on, he like, loots a couple of towns, and he meets John Paul Jones, the American naval hero. And then it ends with these two paragraphs, which I find to be very beautiful. Captain Blood, at dawn, a solitary figure pacing the foredeck. The world of piracy is wide, and at the same time, narrow. One can be gallant all day long, and still end up with a spider monkey for a wife. And what does his mother think of him? favorite dance of Captain Blood is the grave and haunting Catalonian Sardana, in which the participants join hands facing each other to form a ring, which gradually becomes larger, then smaller, then larger again. It is danced without smiling for the most part. He frequently dances this with his men in the middle of the ocean after lunch to the music of a single silver trumpet. Ah, man. To live in a world where such things are written. Uh, I mean, I, like, I think it's amazing because, uh, first of all, I just, I, there's a couple of things I think are incredible about that piece and that made me want to copy it. Um, one of them is just the, the incongruity between the tone and the subject matter. Like, we've all read pirate adventures of this, that, or the other kind. But the transposition of that kind of sort of modern anxiety, uh, existential angst onto that uh, setting, to me, is entirely compelling. Um, you know, I think, uh, so Henri Burson is a French philosopher. He says that, uh, that, that all humor, he has this great essay about humor, but all humor, he says, is about the loss of control at, at every level. Like whether, talking about a guy slips on a banana peel, hilarious. Or, you know, uh, a guy, uh, you know, wakes up in the middle of the night because he hears an intruder and he gets his gun and shoots the intruder, but it's actually his wife. You know, hilarious. You know, uh, it's, it's all about your failure to impact your own uh, course of travel through the world. I mean, you know, you, one can be gallant all day long and still end up with a spider monkey for a wife. I mean, that, that is the, the entire experience of living. That's what it is, you know. Um, and so there's a, a, a universality to that uh, feeling about the spider monkey that you've married that, to me, is extremely compelling. But also just um, the way in which that, the juxtaposition of that tone onto that setting causes us to see the, the setting anew. I mean, you know, like that, that's the whole thing about reading, right? Um, this is the pitch I was giving my students. Like, the whole thing about reading is that, um, you know, as you go through life, you learn to shorthand everything that you see so that you 
no longer look at this and you're like, ah, oh, what is this thing? What do I do with it? Well, you know, what do I think of where is a hat? You know, you just look at it, you're like, ah, oh, book. You know, you're like, chair, amber. You know, you just have a place in your head to put all these things. And so as you get older, you begin to skim over the surface of life, right? And that uh, is basically, I think, I think that's why life begins to seem as if it's moving faster as you go along. Because you no longer absorb, as you are when you're a child, with the minute uh, attempt to figure out what, what it is a piece of paper can do in the world, right? And so, uh, and of course, you have that same relationship to pirate stories. You just, you know what a pirate story is. You know, swashbuckle, cutlass, walk the plank, bury the treasure, blah, 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 right? And so I think that, um, you know, that, that story for me makes me stop and reconsider what a pirate story is. And then that same effect is the thing that allows me to have that relationship with uh, the people and the objects I encounter out there in the world. And therefore, it makes uh, time seem to go that much slower, to be that much richer, and causes my life to feel longer, uh, which is a good thing, I think. So anyway, I, in my own novel, um, so in my own novel, uh, my novel is about a guy who goes to Hollywood about screen, to try to sell a screen dump about Leon Trotsky. Nobody wants a screen dump about Leon Trotsky. So there's a sort of, you know, so there's a sort of uh, hilarity in Sue's plot in Los Angeles. She's trying to sell the script. You can't sell it. And so I wrote a sort of longish story about that. It was pretty self-contained, but it was long. So I was like, oh, man, maybe I'll write this as a novel. But then I was faced with the problem Amber was talking about, which is that the whole story is in this, the point of view of this writer. And it felt very confining trying to write a whole novel in this guy's point of view. So I thought about, well, how could I expand this? What other point of view could I go to for the second section of the novel? And I was taking a walk one day, and I was thinking about Captain Blood, that story which I've read approximately one bazillion times. And I thought, oh, man, the second section is just from Trotsky's point of view. What about that? So in the second part of my novel, Trotsky fakes his death in Mexico. He actually got killed by Stalin's assassins. But my novel, he fakes his death, and he, like, Goes to Havana, he gets a bunch of plastic surgery, just wandering around, getting drunk, and like sleeping with a bunch of hookers, gambling a lot. Um, but this is what I'm about to read you is the beginning of that section uh, when he wakes up in the hospital in Mexico City and realizes he was dead, but in the story he's not dead. And this is, I'm just trying to copy what Barlow did in that section that I read you. So it goes like this Trotsky comes fully awake sometime near dusk. The hospital room is quiet, he is alone. Last, he thinks, Trotsky is awake. The old habit of seeing himself from the outside. For years now, he's been all but unable to stand and light his pipe without thinking, Trotsky stands, lights his pipe. <laughs> he is not a man, but a symbol, an idea made flesh. Even to himself, he has become abstract. He does nothing without watching himself do it. Pacing the terrace, considering the development of fascism as a capitalist reaction, he reflexively considers, too, the length of his contemplative stride, the pensive set of his jaw. Buttering bread at lunch, he briskly contextualizes the Nazi-Soviet pact for a guest. But the concision of his logic is like a performance. He is like an actor in a film. He is Trotsky, playing Trotsky. Bored all but to tears at yet another turgid meeting amid the impotence of fierce rhetoric and endless quibbling over resolutions of a purely rhetorical nature, Trotsky becomes lost for a moment in the swirling shades of a painting above the hearth. The painting depicts a bullfight, the matador, splendid in his sequined bolero, brandishing his crimson roulette at arm's length, courting the horned beast as if death were no more than a footnote to the brilliant colors of evening. A riot of color surrounds him in the frothing stance. Somewhere in the dust and noise, Trotsky thinks, a woman of surpassing beauty straightens her back 
holds her breath, whispers the matador's name. Chestnut eyes, the cheekbones of a Mongol queen, she watches the bull charge toward him, thinking of the way he unpins her hair. He does it patiently, always last, her clothes already cast aside. Long fingers, nimble, his hands are like a disgraced pianist. She can almost feel them now along her spine. Once, in Tampico, he took her from behind over a damp oak cask in the wine cellar of Don Gabino Bereda, as the governor of Tamaulipas and his entire retinue waited in the hall above to offer their congratulations on the afternoon's daring faena in the ring. But then, but then, Cannon's dull voice intrudes, Cannon's monotone drone as he reads, and interminable length he reads, the text of a report on doctrinal strife among exiled Chinese revolutionaries in greater Seattle. Discord that could be traced quite naturally to fundamental weaknesses in popular frontism, the general commentary line out of Moscow, underscoring once more the opportunities available at the Fourth International for blah, 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 until such times as blah, 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 should blah, 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 blah. Trotsky has lost the thread of the argument. But the thread is always the same, so really he hasn't lost it. Really, he's incapable of losing it. Nonetheless, he arrests his wistful smile, turns from the painting, wipes the smile away, for he is Trotsky. He forgets the supple woman bent splay-legged over the wine barrel, silk gown hitched above her waist. He forgets her and reassumes a somber face, more proper to the dire task at hand. World revolution. Forsooth, he is Trotsky. Everyone looks to him. So that's it. <laughs> I'm kind of, my lecture or whatever this is is kind of about making connections. I'm making I'm gonna I'm gonna try to make a connection between a time like about 12 years ago in my life. Um, is this okay? Can you hear me? Well, okay. Uh, to now, which is a very different time in my life. Um, but and so I'm gonna just bear with me. I'm gonna try to just circuitously like bring these disparate things together and hope that uh, they connect and that I can make the bridge happen. Um, and so what I want to talk about, I want to talk about three things. And the first thing is this phrase, it's, the first thing is playing free. I was a musician, I guess, in another life that was my like sort of primary thing I did in my 20s. Um, so that's one thing that I'm going to talk about, and then I want to connect it to this thing that I've been doing just like in the past month um, with my good friend who really, we played music together, um, so she's been this amazing friendship in my life. I met her when I was 17. Uh, we grew up in central Illinois together, 
and we were in bands together. She's um, a visual artist, and anyway, she lives in New York now, um, but we have been doing this sort of, um, we've been making what we call a friendship divination card deck. Uh, so sort of playing with, with these notions of, you know, like the tarot, like sort of this idea of consulting the oracle, um, runes, things like that, we're trying to create our own. Um, so that's the second thing that I'll talk about. And then um, also kind of necessarily, <laughs> I think, friendship and just like how that has influenced me. So I feel like I don't have a really, my idea was like, you know, especially when I talk about playing free, like, um, and that's just, in a nutshell, is, was this group of friends that I had in St. Louis. We all played different sort of forms of music. There were people that played jazz. Primarily there were people, um, Alita and I were in, a rock band together, um, for lack of a better word to describe it. There were people that were into just building their own electronics and making sounds from those, you know? Um, and we all kind of ended up in the way that the community tangle, you know, we ended up in like loverships, friendships, and then we ended up playing music together in these broken down buildings in St. Louis. Uh, which is sort of a broken downtown, at least it, it's been built up now, but a lot of abandoned buildings and such. And anyway, what we did was we rented practice spaces, and so that's kind of how our confluence began. And, okay. So, um, I guess, so, so playing free is this, the idea is, again, that how it changed me was what related to sound and listening. Um, it's an elusive thing, so, but it was the idea of also like being in the moment with a group of people, and we weren't trying to create a song. It wasn't, um, we weren't trying to make a CD or something and go out and perform, although that kind of stuff did end up happening. Um, but. It's informed my being and my creative life so intensely because it was just this new way of paying attention um, that wasn't focused on finishing something. Um, and it was paying attention to sound, obviously. Um, and then I think that's also I, for lack of a better word, paying attention to something like spirit, something that's elusive and wild and shy. And um, you might ask, like, how can you pay attention to that? And I think that I would answer that in sort of a riddle, that I think that paying attention to that sort of thing, paying attention to spirit or maybe love or ecstatic moments um, or friendship, I, think I would call all of those wild things, and I think that they can only actually exist if you do pay attention to them. So how do they exist? I don't know, but I think they only exist if you pay attention to them. Um, so the confluence of attentions that happened with playing free was there was the attention to sound, but then there was also like all of us in a room together, kind of like how we all are now, um, with all of our sort of undercurrents of whatever we're thinking and all of you know, our preconceived notions about sound and making, you know, what's beautiful, what's noisy and ugly, um, our thoughts about our own psychology, whatever. Um, 
but when we were playing with each other, <laughs> uh, it was a, a attention to sound, but also this attention to our connection with each other. Um, and then also necessarily attention to if we were all playing and making sound, when is there a certain lift? So we were then paying attention to this ineffable thing of like spirit or ecstatic lifting or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of my best description of free play. If you all will, at, at the end of this um, talk, I was thinking that I was going to bring like a bag of instruments or just noise making things along and have us all just have a to experience that together, um, just listening to each other and making something out of this one moment right here. Um, but actually, I think that I will do that, but you guys will use your water bottles and things like that. We will all do it together. Um, rather, but I thought about doing that rather than, you know, there are improvisers and free jazz musicians that I love, and I would love to talk about them, but I think what I really meant to talk about is this, the experience that I had doing this that was... It was a handing away of yourself into sound. It was um, a letting go of ideas of form and content, you know, ideas of structure and meaning. Uh, I don't know. Um, so now let's fast forward to now, 10 years later. How am I doing? Like, I, you know, I'm 35. Um, I'm a mother. I don't play music really anymore. Like, I listen to music. Um, sometimes I sit out on the porch and play guitar. I don't write songs really that much anymore. Um, but I write poems, and that's a, a lot different than right sitting in a room connecting with others, connecting just with sound. Um, but I feel the connection that I want to make to what um, I'm doing is that this idea of chance. Um, Alita and I have been creating, like I said, this divination card deck, and we've been doing it all by chance. And that's also, I mean, one of you were talking about just this idea of letting, like, going out of control. Like, so it's the idea that it's not in your hands, that it's, and it's not also inside your own brain. Like, you know how you get really sick of your own brain? At least, that's what happened to me playing guitar. I would sit down and I'd start playing a C chord, and I would, every time it was the same thing. And I felt like, you know, analogously or whatever, that happened also with poetry, and it still does. Like, I'd sit down and just be in my whatever, fish brain, and it would be boring as hell. And anyway, so um, chance operations, just the idea of finding words by chance. It's not that, like, you, I, I give myself stipulations, like, I have to use these words. I mean, I still choose things. I'm still making decisions, you know, but um, it's, it lessens a sort of, it's a relief. It lessens a pressure or something, and it allows me to be more free and more open. Um, and it, it allows me, in a similar way to playing free, to not just start with myself, if that makes sense, but to start with, with something else, anything else than myself. Um, and another thing, I guess, before I read this card is, that I think it's really important, what's really important about it is that it gave my imagination, that I think you need to feed your imagination, I think it's one of these ineffable things and in that it, that you have to feed it space and connection and those are two really contradictory things. Um, and I do this, I feel like I do this through chance. If that makes sense, I don't know. Um, 
So it's a simultaneous letting go and a paying attention to at the same time. Letting go and paying attention to that. Okay. So we last week, so we've been writing um, with this divination card deck. You know, uh, the idea is that when you're playing with divination, it's you know, you're like looking for wisdom in other people. I mean, I think we in other people's words or in like archetypes or elemental sort of modes of being, right? From like the tarot or whatever. Um, people see this in a variety of ways. People open up dictionaries and whatnot. But um, so anyway, so the I, I do sort of have a form for how I wrote this. And this is, I just gathered a couple books and flipped through them and I was, Particularly last week, I was slipping through the books of Renee Char, a poet, um, and then this book called Time. It was just two books. Uh, and that's kind of how I built this card. And there are three sections of it. And the first one is just like a description of sort of the, the new archetype that I'm hoping to create with this card, I guess. And then there's instructions. And that's kind of the funnest part of writing these, is you can give instructions. And then there's a sort of the last part of the card is of, like asking you to remember something. Usually I have a quote there or something. And then Alita, um, on the same day, will just send me, she's a painter and she'll send me an image. So this is the one she sent for this. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to read it and then I will stop talking. <laughs> and, and this one's called The Ring of the Unicorn. That's actually a title of a Renee Sharp poem. Um, and it's card 13, July 12, 2012. Description. The ache of the cricket deep in his wings to sing. Legs. When we come to the mountain, all our waiting will disappear, like a day outside of the calendar. Cupcakes, swimming, fairy dust and cicada bodies. Questions grow from questions at a spacious rate. This is a returning to your good solitude. And here is where part of you dissolves into tomorrow with a zoom. Simultaneously, the suffering of all beings and the years it takes to develop trust and love. But there are days out of time in which an irresistible force is making sense of the universe. Mirths, merriments, a spinning vortex of drastically dense time. Herein, the digression that may be needed to understand the equinoxes or why Egyptians adored the number 12 and thus the 12-hour day. You are being pulled into the circle to dance and know what happens in the epigominal days. All the cosmos, philosophies, philosophies, dictionaries, phrases, fables, maps, all are part of the way the single empty soul crosses the inquity of being. And out comes the noblest and most enduring things of earth, the wild beast of love, radiant throats singing, the truths and their sources, the returning of nourishment. Instructions. Wear a mountain dress or cloak. Memorize Renee Shah's poem, The Ring of the Unicorn, and recite it in a field nearby. Also, explain your last bite of blueberries. Answer in apples. Appear to others as if you are letting something go and let it go. Attend a jamboree wearing nothing under your underwear. Invite emptiness without a veil. Count to 12 24 times as if you were a summer day waiting to enter the earth. Remember, I am a clod of earth claiming its flower. What is essential cannot be exchanged. The world is not a wall. I shall love uncloaked what was trembling under me. Renee Shah. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah. so, I don't know if we have time to do this minute of sound together. Is, do we have to get out of here, Carol? Or? 
So, will you all do this with me? Yeah. Let's <laughs> just make sound and listen to each other for a minute. Whatever you want to do. I'm not going to speak into this microphone, don't worry. <laughs> 